Jesus, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this community. Um, we stand in awe of the good work that you continue to do in our midst and the family that you've brought together. Uh, I still can't believe um, your faithfulness here to us, God. And I just want to bless you for that and ask that today would continue to be another day in that chapter of the story that you're telling here amongst us as we seek ways to follow you and to answer your call in this world. We ask it all in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, our passage today, our title today is Take Courage. And this is going to come specifically from a passage we're going to read in the book of Acts So just a quick little background. Paul has been in Ephesus in the book of Acts. He tears himself away from the people who don't want him to leave. He then heads to all these places that I'm sure you know. Coast, Rhodes, Patara, Phoenicia, Tyre, Ptolemais. And then arrives in Caesarea, which is going to be part of our story here today, where they stayed at the house of Philip the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. I just love this little passage. I just think you shouldn't gloss over it, so I'm making you all look at it for a few moments. So Philip, who was one of the seven that was picked, do you remember we preached on that message some time ago that uh, the diversity of the church was challenging in the early moments of uh, the book of Acts, and um, some of the Greek Jews come and say that their widows are being uh, uh, ignored in the food line, and they go and they complain to the Hebrew-speaking Jews, and then the disciples decide to empower seven Greek Jews, seven Hellenistic Jews, to say, you're the ones then to solve the problem, and they do, and everyone likes that. And so we talked about um, the diversity and um, empowering people within our community when there is hurt and pain. So Philip was one of those seven who was empowered, and he has four unmarried daughters at this moment, and they all prophesy. And there's actually an early church tradition that when Philip was crucified for his faith, in Jesus, um, that he was made to watch the crucifixions of his daughters um, prior to his own. Um, And these would have been those four, and that each one is recorded as saying, Father, don't give in, and Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So Philip raises these incredible women of God, and because uh, we recognize, I, I just think sometimes when we read through the Bible and we read through passages, we ignore all of the places because of our frameworks in life where God is at work and God is using uh, women to tell the story too. So I just wanted to stop and mention that, and um, maybe we'll preach a whole message just on Philip and his, his daughters who are prophets. So after that, they've, they've been in Caesarea there. And after that, there'd been a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. I just want to stop that. It's not that far from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Caesarea Maritima is right there on the coast. And it's, it's a couple days journey to go on up to Jerusalem, primarily because of terrain. But if you were driving it today, it'd probably take a little bit, about like two and a half, three hours, depending on traffic and, and all those things. So it's not too far. About, yeah, two hours or so. So they're begging him, please just don't go. Now, Paul can choose to not go, right? He's been told, if you go, this is what's going to happen. Similar, by the way, to Jesus, who was told, hey, if you go to Jerusalem, 
This is going to happen, but he still goes and still chooses to stay, and Paul does too. Why are you weeping and breaking my heart, he says? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. And when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and we said the Lord's will be done. Similar echoes, right? Not my will, but yours, Lord, Father, can you take this cup from me? Not my will. So all of that kind of echoing into the story as Paul turns his heart towards Jerusalem and heads that way. Well, uh, we spoke about this just a couple weeks ago, but when Paul gets there, there's a bit of a riot, okay? So he heads to Jerusalem. He meets with James. We mentioned his name's real name's Jacob, Yaakov. Um, there's anger about Paul bringing in the Gentiles. They think he's bringing Gentiles in without having them do the things necessary. So Paul speaks to the crowd with some mixed reviews. Some people are liking it. Some people aren't, but now there's mass chaos. In the middle of all this, the Romans are afraid that there's going to be something crazy that happens to Paul, and they kind of reach in and grab Paul out, and they put him in the barracks. They're preparing to flog him until while he's being stretched out and flogged, he's like, hey, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. He's been speaking in Hebrew up to this point, all these other things. So that ushers in a whole other chain of events. And they go, okay, well then go sort this out with your family. Go to the Sanhedrin and sort this out with your own community. So they go there and then he throws everything into disarray and chaos again because he's like, I am on trial because of the resurrection of the dead, which of the Pharisees and such. So all of this chaos is happening and the dispute became so violent that the commander is afraid again that Paul will be torn into pieces. So he orders the troops to go down and take Paul away and from by force and bring him back into the barracks. That following night, while he's in prison in Jerusalem, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for just as you have borne a faithful witness to me in Jerusalem, so now you must bear witness in Rome. Take courage. Paul has a series of trials up to this moment. He's in prison, and he has this incredible experience happen. And let's just set the rest of it into context. This is this one beautiful line, and it's fantastic. And then after this amazing moment, 40 people, 40 men, take a vow, an oath, to not eat or drink until they're going to kill Paul, until they've killed him. Paul's nephew finds out about the plot. He goes and he warns Paul, who's still being held in prison. The Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, arranges for Paul to be taken in the middle of the night. He's so worried about these 40 people who are lying in wait to kill Paul. Um, so he takes him to, back to Caesarea now under a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, and they provide mounts for Paul. So if Paul's horse gets tired, they have another backup one ready to go. So Paul's not going to have to stop at all along the way. It's about a 40-mile journey. So he can be taken to the, safely to the governor, Felix. So they have to sort of um, make sure this Roman citizen who is, whose life is in danger by his own countrymen, because he also is a Jew, is going to be taken away under a Roman battalion in the middle of the night. Can you imagine needing 400 people? I, I, I just, I mean, the, the threat that they must have understood and how concerned they must have been to keep peace, not just to protect Paul, but to avoid riots, to avoid the chaos. And so now they're rushing Paul away in the middle of all this. And Paul gets to Caesarea and he's held in Herod's palace there. And a whole bunch of other things are going to happen. Paul's going to stay there for two years. Now, he has some liberties there. He's not totally like, you know, in bound in chains. He is permitted to have visitors. They are permitted to bring some things to him. But this is his experience within the two years following this great, wonderful moment of take courage, 
Just as you've been my witness in Jerusalem, you will be my witness in Rome. You will testify there. After all this happens, then Paul is eventually going to set sail to Rome and be imprisoned in Rome as he appeals to Caesar through the series of of trials that he has before um, Felix and then before Festus and before King Agrippa and and Bernice, all in Caesarea. He ends up getting a boat, he gets shipwrecked, he gets sent there, and, um, and then the book of Acts will end. So things don't look good for Paul. And And I think sometimes when we look back at people in the Bible and we look at these stories and we have them inform our lives, I grew up in a setting where we would have like Sunday school heroes. Anyone? Sunday school heroes? And we would talk about like, wow, let's be like Samson because Samson was so strong and so faithful. Don't read the Samson story to any child. It's really, it only works if you just stay with that one line and only the last two minutes of his life and it's still really ugly. Um, Or we'll say, let's be like Paul, you know, faithful and wonderful. Well, Paul's been stoned multiple times. He's going to have uh, people thrown into riots almost wherever he goes. He's going to be imprisoned multiple times and eventually he's going to meet a very um, bloody end. And I don't know that in our Sunday school book of heroes, when we talk about Paul, we rarely talk about how hard things are. When we say, hey, I just wish I could have those experiences like those people of old. And we look at our own full length of our spiritual journey. And we then look at one to two paragraphs in our Bible where Abraham has this great face-to-face with God or Moses does or, or um, Deborah is an crazy, a crazy, amazing prophet and judge and she's got these experiences. Or, and we look at those and we go, wow, I wish that could be my life too. We rarely read in all of the difficulties because we like hero worship. It's easy. Simple stories are easy. And so when we look at Paul's life, though, in this moment, Things do not look good. It's not all it's cracked up to be, this life that he's living. It's quite difficult. And his greatest critics are the ones closest to him. The people that criticize Paul the most in the midst of his call, in the midst of his his call to go forth into this world and to speak this message about the person of Jesus... The people who are most upset with him are those that are closest. And oftentimes I found in my own life that when we get those calls or those moments from God, when we're told things like take courage and go and do this great big thing, that oftentimes the people who first throw a lot of water onto that fire of that call are the people that know us best, that know us close, that want to remind us, hey, aren't you the one that used to persecute all the Christians, all the followers of the way. They want to remind us of all of the other things that have gone wrong. And so Paul finds himself needing to defend his own reasons for being there, that he is there. He belongs in this community. He belongs in this conversation. So he starts saying things like, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee of fairies. My my parents did this. Like my, I grew up here. I can speak Hebrew. I can speak Greek. I studied at the feet of Rabbi Gamliel. I have all of these wonderful things about me, but none of that's really working. And in fact, right in the middle of Acts 24, as, as Paul is giving his trial before Felix, he starts to try to explain again. 
and verse 11 and then following of 24, it's like you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I was in Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone in the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogue or the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up to these charges. They can't prove these things against me. But this I do confess to you, he tells Felix, that according to the way, which is how they're calling themselves as followers of Jesus, they're not called Christians yet, according to the way which they call a sect of Judaism, that according to the way, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the Torah and written in the prophets, having a hoping God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. So Paul starts with like these people who are mad at me, who are so angry that they want to kill me, that they're so angry that the Roman Empire is having to ferret me out under the secret of darkness with a huge battalion of people and put me for my own safety. And these, these people, we agree on a whole bunch of stuff. Have you ever found yourself, it, it's the people that you most agree with. You've got like 98%. You're like, we are totally, I but that 2%, man, that means you're not at my table this week. I remember when I first decided I wanted to be a pastor, I was 13 and I felt this call and I thought this, this was just amazing and incredible. And I was by myself and I had this Jesus moment. And it was all, you know, wonderful and good and also very pragmatic. There were lists involved and I got to sort of think through all the things that I felt like um, I wanted to do with my life. And I was like, oh, my pastor gets to do all those things and it was great. So I told my parents and my parents were the first ones to say, dear God, no, right? Uh, please don't do that. That's a terrible idea. So the ones closest to me didn't see that call. They didn't think of it even as a call. In fact, years later, um, my mom told me that she thought that some of the cause of the friction between our relationship was that she didn't first support me. Like she was almost being punished for not supporting me in this call initially. They're very supportive now. But those initial, and by the way, it wasn't for religious reasons. It was that they didn't want me to be poor. So great. I totally get it. I want my kid to make more money than I do too. So, you know, I wanted, maybe they wanted me to set them up in some nice ways in their older years. Um, and, and I remember later on in college trying to explain to my mom again, and I was like reaffirming that call, and I was leaving this prestigious four-year university to go and do full-time ministry and get a Bible degree, and they were deeply concerned about my mental health, and because um, I tried to do the thing that they wanted me to do, and I couldn't. And I remember telling my mom, I am compelled to do this. I I have to do this thing. I have to go and do this thing. And then I'm trying to relate. So I say to her, isn't there anything that you've also ever felt like really like compelled to do? And and I said, like, maybe marry dad or or be a mom or, or find these things. And she was like, no. And I realized in that moment, we're speaking a different language. That I I can't convince her of an experience that that she's not had. And and, and we've found wonderful ways to share all that together. My mom's amazing. She taught me how to follow Jesus the way I follow Jesus. I owe all of it to how God has worked in her life. But but we conflict over those 2% things in our life quite a bit. And, And yet, for anyone who's had that take courage, do the hard thing, When we do those hard things, when we stand up for injustice, when we take courage for those things, it's so difficult when the people we love that are closest to us don't have our backs. 
Uh, a few weeks ago, um, my dear friend Kendra shared something on Facebook that totally blessed me. And she shares very few things on Facebook. And, and the one thing that she shared was to all, it was, it was a quote from a, another person on Facebook. I know it's all crazy how this touched me, but it basically said, to all the white allies out there, whenever you take a, a stand about issues of racial injustice and you get crickets, but as soon as you post about pumpkin spice latte, you get 150 likes, the person said, thank you. And that helped me so much, that post, that I could feel like, I, Paul, like he gets this, take courage. You're going to testify in Rome the way you've testified in Jerusalem, but these people closest to you are going to try to kill you as you take this stand. And sometimes it's just hard to be in those places of call. It's hard to be in those places of courage. It's hard to stand there. It's much easier to post about the pumpkin spice latte. It, it is. And I understand that. I'm not talking about how everybody should take a stand on Facebook or social media is the right way to do it. Or any, I'm not having, I just, if it's the conversation around the dinner table, if it's the tough conversation you go to have it with a friend or a coworker or a loved one or persons within the church, the national uh, American church, how we have these conversations, man, it gets ugly and divisive so quickly. It's not at all surprising to me that people are trying to kill each other. Because it feels like that sometimes in just our national discourse of how we speak about other brothers and sisters in the faith. And Paul is finding that the people who are closest to him are the most opposed to this call that God has placed in his life. That's a hard thing to do. Now, the other thing I just want to note about what Paul is doing is that if God is telling Paul that you will testify in Rome in the same way that you have testified and witnessed in Jerusalem, if I'm Paul, I'm like, uh, God, that's not going well. That's immediately foreshadowing, isn't it? Hey, you're going to go do the same thing that you're, by the way, you're in prison for this thing, and you're going to go and do that same thing in Rome. If I'm Paul, I'm thinking, uh, can I have a different set of marching orders or could you start to change how success is measured according to your kingdom? So what do we do when the metrics we use to prove that God's work is in the world, to prove that God is here, what do we do when those aren't the same metrics we use? So for me, if I'm thinking, wow, this would be amazing, God, let's have this incredible testimony— Paul is going to appeal to Caesar. He's going to go to Rome. He's going to stand before Nero. Yeah, this Nero, the guy that burned the Christians. And, and Nero is going to be like, wow, I've never heard about this Jesus before. This is the most incredible thing. So you say four spiritual laws. Excellent. Romans wrote. Fantastic. Let me just sit down, pray right now. I'm going to kneel right now and invite Jesus into my heart. Like that's the only reason I can think why God should ever tell Paul to go to Rome and testify in Rome the same way he's testified in Jerusalem. It's because it's going to be a great testimony. That's, of course, not what happens to Paul. Paul is beheaded by Nero, according to the Acts of Paul, an early Christian extra-biblical text. That doesn't look like success to me. That doesn't look like the prophetic call I'm asking for. Take courage, Paul. Is this going to be great news for you? Take courage. The Jews who are, who are there and the Romans who are there, they're all bent sort of on destroying you at this moment. Great news. That, that's going to happen. 
you're, you're, that's where you're headed. You're headed to experience the complete destruction of your land. You're headed to continue to witness and, and share in prison the same way that you're in prison there. We see, I would have so many other questions for God. The ways that I want to rationalize all of the suffering I see in the world. The ways that I want to rationalize... I remember so many times with my best friend before she passed away of cancer and she had a long battle that I would sit there and go, okay, God, come on, let's just heal her because that's going to be the best testimony ever, right? All these doctors, all these nurses are always going to sudden, suddenly see this woman with one leg, one lung, inoperable tumor on her spine, just get up and go. Can that be your testimony here? And that feels like the metric I want to use to prove God's call, to prove God's goodness, to prove God's action in this world, is if the metric for what I perceive to be success is the same one God uses. So what do we do when the call is, take courage, go do something really hard that's not going to seem successful at all and will result in your death? As we pick up our cross and die to self, what do we do when the call doesn't match our metric of success. So I think most frequently what happens is people will say things like, that church, man, they are so blessed by God. The Holy Spirit's really there. What's your metric for success? Well, they have a thousand people and they have a huge building or they have this or they have that or they have so many downloads on it. Anyone? Metrics for success. How do you know if you're supposed to be with that person for life or if you're supposed to get that job or you're supposed to have that particular family or how are those things well it'll work out perfectly it'll all exactly line up this is how we know god has blessed us and all of that sneaks in to our everyday thinking of how we determine whether or not we are in the will of god and in the call of god right will it look the way that we expect it to look so that our success matches up with god's Divine encounters in the Bible, we often think that they look like this. Awe-inspiring and angelic music, beautiful things, but it turns out that they more often look like this. That, that the divine encounter doesn't come in a big, necessarily blinding light with angelic vision and then everything working out exactly as it's supposed to go. In the Bible, the frequent frequency of divine encounter comes in the midst of darkness. It comes in the midst of prisons. It comes in the midst of pain and hurt and suffering. And God shows up in those moments and says, take courage. I'm with you. And you're going to testify in Jerusalem and in Rome. It comes in the midst of the darkness. And the circumstances don't change the call. We so frequently want to say, okay, but God, it's not working. It's not easy. The doors aren't opening the way I expected them to do. I've been shipwrecked. Someone's been bit by a snake and I'm being imprisoned. So I must have gotten the call wrong. But the circumstances don't change the call. As God calls Abraham hey, you're going to have all these descendants. It's going to be amazing. Abraham's first thing is, I don't have any kids. And I'm really old. But it didn't change the call. When God shows up to Moses, he's like, hey, go and get my people out of Egypt. And Moses says, who, me? 
I don't know you. What's your name? I can't talk. Please don't send me. I don't even know what to say. I'm not going to go. Here's all my circumstances that indicate why this is a really, really bad idea. And God's like, still go. That the circumstances in our life don't change the call. When we're called to stand up for God's call in our life, when we're called to be in those moments of difficulty, this is why God has to say, take courage, take heart. Don't be afraid. Because it's going to be really, really hard. It's not going to be easy to stand in the places for the oppressed, for the vulnerable, for the weak. It's not going to be easy to be the one person standing out there and saying, this is not okay. This injustice is not okay. You will then be a target. Take courage. Take heart. Don't be afraid because we've got a really good news for you. This is, we're into the long view. And Paul knew this too because the entire Bible is a story of God's people living in chaos. Never is there a time where everything's all set to right until you get to the very end of the book, which hasn't yet happened yet. We go from garden to sin to exile, kicked out of the garden. Then we go from murder and then sin and wickedness to flood, total chaos. Then we have Abraham, but there's no land and no descendants, no sons. So then we eventually get Joseph, whose brothers don't like him, and send him into slavery. And then there's a famine, so we have to go down to Egypt. There's slavery for 400 years. 400 years. So Moses is there, but Moses isn't going to get to go to the land. There's going to be 40 years of wandering. And when you get to the land, there's going to be battles and giants and the Philistines. And you're not going to actually take and hold the whole land. Joshua never does. They really never do. Ultimately, they do in King Solomon's time. But there's bad judges and there's bad kings. And things are happening and the prophets have to go in and start speaking truth to power and trying to argue for the vulnerable and the oppressed and the people that are hurt. It's never right. So then the Assyrians come and they exile in 722 BC. And the Babylonians come and they exile the southern kingdom in 586 BC. And then there's exile. And then they get to return, but you don't get a king and you don't get your own people. Oh, and by the way, Alex the G is coming, Alexander the Great. And he's going to run through and he's going to make you all speak Greek. And there's going to be theater and their temples and their gods. And then he's going to die early. And then there's going to be the Ptolemies. They're going to be brutal. And they're going to hurt you and harm you if you try to maintain faithfully to God's commands. And after them, great, guess, good news, Romans are coming. They're going to crucify so many Jews that they will run out of wood and have to start crucifying them to the city walls. There will then be massive persecution, and then there will be the total destruction of the temple in 70 CE. It'll be all gone, and then there's going to be exile again. Good news, everybody, the entire Bible is full of chaos. There's not one person who is called by God that isn't called into the chaos. And Paul is too. His divine call comes right in the midst of the chaos. Take courage, Paul. What just happened here, that's going to happen in Rome too. Those types of riots, that type of anger, that type of frustration with this message. But there's a long view. I I think for me, many times in my life, um, I, I get so wrapped up into the why God, why? And I want to understand the why right now, but the long view helps me to understand that really right now, 
I don't get as much of an explanation as I want. I have to continue to look forward to what is true in this moment and what will continue to be true. Sometimes when we see hurricane after hurricane after hurricane and earthquake and systemic injustices and pain and suffering and famines, we sit there and we say, is this the new normal? And I kind of want to lean into that for a minute and say, this is the norm. It's always been chaotic. It's always been painful. Where is God? In the midst of the chaos. God is in the prison cells. God is standing with us when the buildings fall. Jesus is there with those people who are suffering. Jesus is standing with the oppressed, and he is calling all of us to say, stand to and take courage. Not because things are going to get better, except for that very, very long view. Not because any circumstances are necessarily going to change in that moment. Are you guys all feeling really depressed right now? But I'm just saying, it's okay. You might be in year 200 of the 400 slavery of Egypt, but year 400 is coming. The deliverer is coming. Just because you and I might be in this year doesn't mean that what we believe and the promises that we stand on in the person of Jesus aren't true. Resurrection is still here. New life is still here. The light will still be here. Jesus is here, but it's in the midst of the chaos. And the chaos doesn't go away. But in the midst of it, you are not alone. We are not alone. Jesus is here with us. In this community, in this world, in countries far away, right here close at hand, in places of wealth and places of deep poverty, Jesus is here in the midst of the chaos. He's going to be at your Thanksgiving table with the relatives that want to argue. Or maybe you're the one that wants to argue. (laughs) And instead, we're going to lean back into all of Jesus' commands, into the way, the way of Jesus. Love God. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We lean back into the person of Jesus. We double down on everything that Jesus has taught us. And we stand there in the midst of the chaos. In the midst of the times when we are tempted, when we are tried, when we are suffering. In the midst of the times where good people die and it seems that bad people are thriving. In the midst of all of those times, we will stand there and still say, Jesus is here. Take courage. You still have work to do. You still have a call. And the metrics of this world, how we measure success and what it's supposed to look like, those aren't the ways that Jesus does it, historically or in the future. It's measured differently. There's a song that helps me with this. It's by an artist, Josh Gerrels, and um, it's called Farther Along. I hope you'll pay attention to the lyrics and have some... Um, soothing balms your soul as we remember the promises of God and we take courage and we remember this long view farther along know all about it farther along our 
So cheer up, my brothers. Live in the sun and shine. We'll understand this all by and by. Tempted and tried, I wonder why the good man dies, bad man thrives in Jesus Christ, 'cause He loves them both. We're all castaways in the Heart, don't be afraid. There's goodness here in the midst of the chaos, and Jesus is with us. Amen.